Our scripture reading will be 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you in contempt by the trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to you, to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have law sits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. In 1992, a 79-year-old woman named Stella bought a cup of coffee at McDonald's and she spilled it on her lap, burning herself. A New Mexico jury awarded Stella $2.9 million in damages because McDonald's had the audacity to serve hot coffee. And so since that happened, a guy by the name of Randy Cassingham decided to do what he called annually the Stella Awards. And the Stella Awards are awards for ridiculous lawsuits. I looked up a couple of the Stella Awards this week. Here's one, the family of Robert Hornbeck. Hornbeck volunteered for the Army and served a stint in Iraq. After getting home, he got drunk, wandered into a hotel service area, passing danger warning signs, crawled into an AC unit, and was severely cut when the air came on. Unable to care for himself due to his drunkenness, he bled to death. A tragedy to be sure, but one solely caused by an irresponsible adult. However, his family sued the hotel for $10 million. Or Alan Ray Heckard, this is the best. Even though Heckard is three inches shorter, 25 pounds lighter, and eight years older than former basketball star Michael Jordan... The Portland, Oregon man says he looks a lot like Jordan and is often confused with him. And thus, he deserves $52 million for defamation and permanent injury. I mean, there's a lot of people you may not want to look like, but Michael Jordan would be pretty cool to look like. Plus, $364 million in punitive damage for emotional pain and suffering. Plus, the same amount from Nike co-founder Phil Knight, for a grand total of $832 million. He dropped the suit after Nike's lawyers chatted with him where where they evidently told him they would countersue, and that wouldn't be pretty. 
ridiculous lawsuits is that all this section of Scripture is about? Well, no, it isn't. But the reality of a, a frivolous, ridiculous lawsuit among brothers in the church at Corinth causes Paul to take the paintbrush and paint a wide picture that you and I can use in any situation in which we find ourselves. And I would say to you this morning that Paul's response to this frivolous lawsuit between brothers in the church at Corinth gives us, in a sense, a prototype so that we can apply this prototype to any situation in which we find ourselves. Now, he doesn't do it in a linear fashion, so I won't go verse by verse, but I'll actually start at the back and move forward. Here's what Paul says. In light of this frivolous lawsuit between brothers in the church, you need to know who you were, Know what God did, know who you are, and know who you will be. Know who you were, know what God did, know who you are, and know who you will be. Who does Paul say they were? Look at the end of what Deb has read for us. He says, verse 9, do you not know? That phrase occurs several times, and that's why it works its way into these truths that you need to grab and go with this morning. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That word unrighteous means those who practice sin. Those who practice wrongdoing will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived or don't be fooled. And I would pause to say here this morning, if you can sin and there's never a check in your heart, there's never a thought, oh wow, look what I did. I never should have done that. You need to go back and check yourself. You need to check your salvation. Did you truly come to God by faith in Jesus Christ? He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be be deceived. And then he begins to list some sins. Neither the sexually immoral, let's work through the list quickly, neither the sexually immoral, that covers a a broad range of sexual sin. Uh, fornication, sin before marriage, uh, uh, broad range, pornography, etc. Nor idolaters. In Paul's day, if you rolled into Corinth, it was the New York City or the Los Angeles of, of the day. And if you uh, sailed into Corinth, you would look upon the hill and see the temple, and you would see the cult prostitutes everywhere, and you would discover in the city of Corinth significant idolatry. But today, idolatry is not so much something that is made of wood or is made of stone that you can put your hand on. Idolatry today can be in the form of a bank account. It can be in the form of a relationship. It can be in the form of a job uh, or a uh, position on your ball team. It can be in the form of a career. It could be in the form of many things that aren't bad in and of themselves, but they become ultimate to you. 
They become the definition of good and success for you. And so this is what uh, can happen with idolatry today. Nor adulterers, that's pretty self-explanatory, nor men who practice homosexuality. Interesting phrases in the Greek, but they point to the act of homosexual relationships. It doesn't mean that if you sit here this morning and you struggle with homosexuality, that Paul is addressing you. Many of us struggle against many different sins in our lives. It's the person who practices it. Notice that in here and with all of these. Uh, Nor thieves, that's pretty self-explanatory, nor greedy. Now, greedy is an interesting word because when we think of greed, we often think that greedy people are always rich. They're rich people, and the way they got rich was by being greedy. But greedy people can sometimes be the poorest. They can sometimes be the people who have the least. And so I came across this definition of greedy this week, and I want to read it rather than try to uh, 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 just paraphrase it. Those who treat others only as objects for their gratification. All right, so a greedy person is a person who treats someone else solely as an object for your gratification. What does that mean? That means if you're poor and you have a rich friend, the only reason you have that friend is because they have money and you want the money they can give. Or if you're in a difficult spot, you only have a friend because they can give you counsel. They can give you advice. That's what a greedy person does. A greedy person seeks out friendships and relationships only for what they can get. It interestingly enough, applies to the sexual arena as well. The guy uh, uh, who seeks you out simply because he wants to be uh, with you physically, that is a greedy guy. Greed crosses the gamut of many arenas of our lives. Now, at the 930 service, we have loads of teenagers, and often teenagers can view their parents only for what their parents can buy them, right? Somebody said amen, all right? So uh, they can view their uh, parents only for what they can buy them. Yesterday, I went on a bike ride, and a guy who was riding with us uh, is is a salesman. He sells shoes, socks, all kinds of things. And we began to talk about this craze among teenagers for socks, All right, so when I was uh, a kid, that was a long time ago, socks were intended to cover your feet, period. All right, that's all they did. But today, socks make a huge statement. If they've got a Nike swoop on them and three or four little stripes and they're called elites, all of a sudden, they can be sold for 18 bucks. A pair. It's insane. $18 for a pair of socks. And so it's, it's, it's crazy uh, what these socks can go for. And the guy who was with us, he says, what people don't realize, they're cheap cotton socks made in China with a Nike swoop on them. I mean, they sweat my son's feet to death. Like, it's horrible. And so, but, but, parent, but kids, teenagers, you can view your parents only as how they can provide for you. College students, you can do the same thing. Or you can view your relationship with your coach as only as he or she advances you. 
And that's it. That's greed. Greed cuts across the gamut. And then there's drunkards. That goes without saying. Revilers, abusive speech. People who can cut others down with simply a word, abusive speech. Swindlers, probably accompanies greed. You may be in here and own your own business and you view your customers or your clients only as a means to an end. As much money as you can make off of them, you will. You're not trying to meet their needs. You're trying only to meet yours. You are a swindler at that point. But what does Paul say? And such were some of you. Do you know what Paul is saying? He's saying to the Corinthian church, you used to be that list. Now here's what I want to say to that. If that is the case, and it is with the Corinthian church, and it is with the church at Grace Community this morning, if that is the case, it's a wonder we get anything done, isn't it? I mean, look who we used to be. Look what we used to do. Look Where we used to be, we are, are sinners who are being reformed by the grace of God. I love what uh, Tim Keller says. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. Get that. The Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that he was glad to die for me. That's what he is saying here. Many of you are familiar with the story from Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, Jesus is talking. Peter is asking him, if my brother offends me, should I forgive him at least seven times? I don't know how Peter arrived at seven, I'm not sure, but he asked the question, should I go for seven times? And Jesus says, no, 77. You ought to go at least 77 times. Now, all of this is hyperbole. It is because seven in a Jewish mindset is the number of completion. And Jesus says, just keep forgiving, keep forgiving, keep forgiving. And evidently, he sees a look on Peter's face that lets him know that Peter is struggling with what he's saying, so he tells a story. He says, there's a king who had servants, and it was time for them to pay their bills. And he brought them in, and the servants stood before the king, and one by one they came up, and the king said, here's what you owe. And a servant came up who owed the king a lot. As a matter of fact, it's one of those numbers that if you were to punch it in your computer or in your uh, uh, calculator on your phone, it would come up like with an E at the end. It was so much money. And the king said, pay up. And the guy said, you know I can't. I I have no way of paying a debt so large. It's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. If we were to translate it into today's uh, currency, it's just Beyond my ability to pay. And the king said, well, I'm going to throw you and your wife and your kids. You'll be slaves. And the guy begged. And the king forgave the unforgivable bill, the debt. End of story, right? No. Uh, The guy who had been forgiven the massive debt goes out. And he finds a guy who owes him what would be the equivalent of about $23,000. 
He's been forgiven hundreds of millions. He finds a guy who owes him about $23,000. And he says, hey, man, you owe me. And the guy says, I can't pay. And this man who had been forgiven hundreds of millions looks at the guy who can't pay and says, all right, go to jail. And he throws him into prison. No mercy at all. And word gets back to the king. And when the king hears what has happened, he calls the guy whose large, massive, unpayable debt he had forgiven. And he says, what do you think you were doing? I forgave you of all of this, and you won't forgive him of that. And then he put him in prison. Jesus made his point. What is the point? Well, he who has been forgiven much, forgives much. When you know who you were, and you know how much God forgave you, well, the person who is, doesn't look at you right, or maybe they don't speak to you when they, you think they should. Or maybe it's even worse. Maybe it's a significant way that they have hurt you or offended you. Here's the question. How much has God forgiven you? How much have they done against you? Which is greater? Paul's response to this is to know who you were. We were sinners separated from God. Secondly, he says, know what God did. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Here's what God did. God washed you. That word is in the middle voice, which uh, little English language, meaning that it was done to the person by someone else so the person couldn't do it for him or herself, but the person had to say, you can wash me. The Holy Spirit will draw you, but you must say, wash me. If you've ever had kids, sometimes boys don't like to take baths and and little boys who don't like to take baths, if you force the issue sometimes, then you get wet, the whole bathroom gets a bath, everything gets a bath. God doesn't take you kicking and screaming against your will into his family. He draws you by his spirit, and when you respond to him, when you respond with humility and brokenness and repentance, he washes you. You were washed. That's what God did. He washed you. Not only did he wash you, he uh, sanctified you. It means to be set apart. That's why Paul opens this section. If you looked at it in the Greek, the first word of 6-1 is dare. How dare you, he asks. Take a brother against court. You, you've been set apart. You're different. You're holy. And you were justified. What does it mean to be justified? To be justified means this. When you are justified, it means that you are declared righteous or you have fulfilled all of the law. Now, has anybody read Leviticus lately? 
Some of you are my Old Testament students. You're getting ready to wade through that a little bit. Nobody can fulfill that, right? No one can fulfill that. But justification says, in God's eyes, you're viewed as if you have. That's what God did. This week, uh, or this summer, we were privileged to go on vacation in Florida. And some friends of ours who own a place there gave it to us for a week, such a gracious gift. And so we were close enough to Miami, we decided to go down, Trent and I, and watch the Marlins play. Went online, got a couple tickets. Uh, They were rather cheap. When I got there, I realized that why they were rather cheap, because us and about five others were at that game. And uh, so I realized not many people watch the Marlins play baseball. It's a beautiful stadium, absolutely beautiful. It's new. It was hot outside. It's covered, air conditioning. And Trina and I are just sitting there waiting for the game to start. We had gotten there early. We're pretty pumped, you know, to be in this stadium, waiting for the game to start. There is a group of people. There are more than five people there. It just wasn't full. But there is a group of people sitting around us. And and Trina and I are just sitting there, just taking, kind of drinking it all in, like when you go to a new place. When this couple, young couple, walks up to us, they're pretty hip looking. They walk up to us and they said to me is it just the two of you and I said well yes it is and they handed me two tickets and they said here use these and I looked down and they looked a whole lot better than where we were sitting (laughs) wow and they just walked off they never said their name nothing they just walked off and I said Trent why are we sitting here And so we get up and we head down and we end up three rows behind the Marlins dugout. I mean, I'm looking down the row and I nudge Trent. I said, Trent, look at that watch. I mean, their their watches cost more than my car. It was was just these people and they knew those people. The players, and they would talk back and forth with them by name when they would come in and out. I don't know if they're groupies. I don't know. But there we're sitting right there with them, just like we bought that ticket. And so I started thinking pretty highly of myself. No, I didn't. No, why? Because the only reason I was sitting in that seat three rows back, able to take a a picture of, of Stanton in stance as he's swinging, the only reason I could do that is why? Because they gave me the tickets. That is the only reason you can sit here as a child of God this morning. Because of what God did. There's nothing you did to earn it. Nothing you did to deserve it. You won't sing enough songs. You won't teach enough lessons. You won't attend enough worship services. You won't do enough good things. I won't preach enough good sermons. There's nothing that you and I can do to earn our spot, earn our place. We only sit here by the grace of God. And that's what he says. This is what God did. Look what God did. He did it. You didn't. And third, he says, know who you are. So know who you were. Know what God did. Now know who you are. And that gets us back to verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the what? The saints. You, if you belong to Christ, are a saint. All right? If you belong to Christ, you are a saint. How could Paul 
possibly call these people saints. In chapter uh, 5, the previous chapter, he has dealt with the issue of a man who's having sexual relations with his stepmother in the church. How could he call those people saints? Because of what God did, period. Because of what God did. I want you to look at the person beside you and say, you're a saint. Do it right now. You're a saint. All right. Some of you did that and you weren't very convinced. All right. It was just quite obvious. You weren't very convinced. I noticed the same thing happened in the early service. There were some husbands who looked at some wives. And I don't think they said that before they left for church this morning. Somehow it wasn't saintly then. And so, uh, so try one more time say, you're a saint. Just, just one more time. Look at the person and say that. You're a saint, all right? It, it's strange to hear that, isn't it? But that's who we are in Christ. By the way, if you're sitting here without Christ this morning, they were just joking, okay? It's only for those who are in Christ, who belong to Christ, who are saints, Look at that. He says, your saints, verse 5, he says this. He asks a question, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute, dispute between brothers? You're wise. Those of us who belong to, uh, or people of the, uh, of the faith of Christ, we have the wisdom of Christ. James 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him do what? Somebody said it, say it loud. Let him do what? Ask. God will give you all the wisdom you want. All you got to do is ask. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously. God will pour out his wisdom on you. James 3 verse 17 says, The wisdom that comes from above is first of all pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruit. God's wisdom is legit. It's good stuff. It's right stuff. It works. You are saints you are wise. But maybe the most profound picture that brings Paul to say, how dare you, is, is that he says, brother goes to court against brother. You are family. When you come to God by faith in Christ, you're family. We belong to him and to one another. And it makes no sense for a brother to go to a corrupt Corinthian court, and they were corrupt. Money could buy any case any day of the week and take that brother and publicly humiliate him in front of the entire unbelieving world. The title of the sermon is Judge and Judge Judy. You guys seen the show? She's harsh. All right? She's hard. She's harsh. She's difficult. I, I, I wouldn't ever want to sit in Judge Judy's court. Would you? But I looked up this week. She has her own website. And here's one of the cases for this week. A man sues his sister for breaking his TV 
during a late-night argument. She countersues that he damaged her dryer in a fit of rage. All right, so here you have a brother and a sister. What's going on with brother and sister? The brother says, she broke my TV. The sister says, he broke my dryer. And we're going to go on national television and let everybody see us act like idiots. What? We look at that, and what do we say? We say the same thing Paul says. How dare you? You're brother and sister. Can't you settle this as brother and sister? How dare you put this on national television? This goes against every idea of family, right? And that's what Paul is saying. When you come to Christ, you're my brother. I'm your, uh, I'm your brother. You're my, you're my sister. I'm your brother. We, we're family. Family should never do it. And then Paul says, know who you will be. This may catch you by surprise. Verse 2. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Huh. We are judges in training. All right, I hope we do a little better than Judge Judy. All right, so, but we're judges in training. And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? All right, think about this. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, do you not know that one day you will judge the world? And if you're going to judge the world one day, can't you handle the little squabble between you and a brother in Christ today? So, Jerry, how are we going to judge the world? Look at verse 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? We are going to judge angels and the world. Now, judges in the Old Testament weren't judge duties. They were really political, prophetical leaders. The book of Judges is about that. Romans 3, 6 says God is the judge of the world. But here's what 2 Timothy says. So we're not talking about judging in the sense of between right and wrong. We're talking about leading alongside God. So here's what Timothy says, or Paul says to Timothy. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Daniel, in Daniel 7, 22, he's having a vision. And in his vision, he says, as I looked, this horn, uh, speaking of the devil, made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days, or the Antichrist, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. We're judges in training. When you come to God by faith in Christ, you may not realize that you signed up to rule with him one day. Jude, verse 6, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. We don't fully get it. We don't fully understand it. But what we do know is that we are being trained right now to judge the world, to reign with Christ. Wow. So here's the question. How do you go from here? That list of sins. A reviler, 
an adulterer, a homosexual? How do you go from a greedy person all the way over here and Jesus Christ returns and sets up shop and when he does, we reign with him. There's nothing you can do to get all the way from there to there. That's who you were. What God did was to save you. Who you are? Saint. Wise. Family. Who you will be? Judge. Who reigns with Christ. Now here's the deal. If you, once you have come out of darkness into the light, remember who you are? because of what God did and know what you will be you'll live differently and this applies to frivolous lawsuits and gossip and disappointing dads and mothers who hurt you and spouses who disappointed and the list goes on and on and on it's just a case study for Paul to preach the gospel. When we hear the name John Newton, immediately we think of that song, Amazing Grace. He pinned the words to that. What you may not be aware of is Newton's story is rather fascinating. He was raised by a godly mom until he was seven and she died of tuberculosis. His dad was anything but godly. And Newton made seven different trips on ships with his dad and on those trips learned every bit of debauchery he would need to fuel his sinful nature. He entered the Royal Navy, but he wouldn't respect and he was kicked out and went running only to find himself working for a man by the name of Clow, who was a slave owner. And Newton says during that time period, he was rebellious and he believed that he could be his own man and do his own deal and nobody would tell him what to do, so much so that he said, I tempted and led all kinds of other people into sin. He said, I saw it as my goal to do that. While working for Clow, being harshly treated, he came to, he was living in rags, had no food. He was begging for food on the streets. So he then joined himself to another merchant ship, a slaver, a slaver's ship, and began to work for him. They were at sea when a fierce storm came up. Newton was reading Thomas Akempis' work, The Imitation of Christ, and he was struck by one phrase in that work, and that spoke to the brevity of human life, meaning you're not invincible. We're all going to die. And on that ship... Newton prayed 
He said that was the beginning of his conversion, that he would say fully it was later. He then actually worked against slavery and those slave ships, tried to help Wilberforce to end slavery in Britain. Became a pastor of a church. Here's what he wrote. I am not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was. A slave to sin and Satan, and I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. And what do we say to that church? Amen. Amen. If you are here this morning and you have never truly heard in the deepest parts of your soul the sound of of amazing grace. You can be washed. You can be justified. You can be sanctified. And this morning you can pray and receive Christ. There's no need to wait. There's no need to delay. There's no need to say, I'll wait another week or another week or another week. No. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Receive him as your Savior. Turn from your sins and receive Christ. Respond to the work of the Spirit. And then if you are here to join the church, you come to starting point and you know Christ, you know what grace is about, you want to be part, this is a time for you to respond. We want you to come this morning. Let's stand and sing. You obey the Lord.